Hello, and welcome to Not Another Witch podcast. I'm Vicky, aka the Aphrodisian Witch, and today is like our first proper episode together for the podcast. I've actually already tried to record this once already, um, but for some reason I just got really in my head and was like, ooh, this is, this is not witchy enough, this is not um, what people want, and then I realised it's literally my podcast and uh, nobody's actually listened to anything at this point, so I really don't know what people want. Um, <laughs> so just to be totally transparent, um, there is so much imposter syndrome coming up with me around making this podcast, around giving myself a little bit more freedom with making this content with this kind of longer form sort of way of approaching my work. Um, it's kind of funny because it's the exact thing that I always tell like my students and stuff to not do. Um, and similarly, you know, at the time of recording this, I am midway through launching Rose Witch Coven, um, which is kind of like my signature program. And it's my biggest offer that I do. It's um, got even bigger, this cohort. It was three months, now it's four months. And I've added a load of extra stuff. And as anyone who has, not even just a spiritual business, I guess any kind of business, um, you'll know that launching is always stressful. And I think especially when it's something to do with spirituality, it brings up a lot of vulnerability, especially like around this offering, because I feel like Rose Witch Coven, you know, it's me <laughs> in a program. It's really th the way that I approach my practice, the way that I approach witchcraft. And I guess it sort of gets to the heart of why I started this platform, why I started my business. And that was to support witches in building more pleasurable and authentic and creative practices. So obviously because it's something that's so close to my heart, it feels whew, so tender to put it out there and to just allow people just to kind of sit with it and see how, see how they feel about it because it is, it's an investment, it's a big investment, and um, that's totally not lost on me. And at the same time, it's also like the first time I've sort of sold something a second time. Um, everything else that I've kind of done since I started this business just over a year ago has been new. I've done new offerings, and this is the second time I'm offering Rose Witch Coven. So there's lots of stuff coming up. I'm also like on my period. And the weather's turning really cold. I am literally kind of looking out at my window of the Welsh Valleys and it just looks really gray and dreary, which is really common for Wales. So it's funny because when I first started thinking about my first episode, I really wanted it to be super joyful and creative and just allow me to expand. And I kind of haven't got that as I've been planning this first episode. Um, I actually don't think I've actually said what this first episode is about. Um, I'm sorry if this is really chaotic. Uh, this is probably what the podcast is going to be like. I'm sure the title will probably have it in it. I'm going to be talking about kind of reclaiming my Welsh ancestry, my journey with my Welsh ancestry and connecting with Welsh ancestors, with the land, 
Um, that's what I'm going to be talking about today. Initially, I wasn't sure whether this was going to be the first episode because talking about my Welshness, um, I think even in the introduction, I think I I kind of <laughs> uncovered a little bit of a of a tender point for me around not sounding particularly Welsh because there is this sort of disconnect with my lineage, which is funny because I have I was born here, I spent most of my life in Wales and I now live here and I have no intention of leaving. But it is definitely a a more tender spot for me. And I think that's probably the case for possibly quite a few Welsh people because there is so much oppression and censorship and disconnection within. So I'm sort of, I'm expecting this to be a relatively long episode. I've written some notes and I have quite a lot to say. Um, So I encourage you to pause the episode here, go and get yourself like a nice drink and a nice snack, make yourself experience pleasure, even if it's just like a teeny, teeny little bit more. It doesn't have to be like the most pleasure you've ever experienced in your life. Um, Just 1% more pleasurable, whether that's getting an additional layer or even just rearranging your body or where you're sitting so that you're just a tiny bit more comfortable um, and settle in. I have some very complicated feelings around the stuff that I'm going to be talking about today. So it might get a bit heavy, (laughs) maybe, or it might be really joyful. It might be a very joyful and creative, nurturing conversation. Who knows? Um, But I hope that you will join me, I guess, for the ride. So leaning into the kind of support of my Welsh ancestry and incorporating my Welsh culture and Welsh spirituality into my practice a little bit more um, has been an incredibly kind of grounding experience for me. I didn't really get much education about Welsh history or Welsh culture as I was growing up. I live in South Wales, and for people who maybe aren't from the UK or even from Wales, um, South Wales does have less of Welsh-speaking culture as far as I'm aware. Like, I've met quite a few people from North Wales who speak Welsh, um, and it's less common down here. I would say almost South Wales, because of how industrial it's been in the past, has become quite anglicised through no fault (laughs) of its own, but I would definitely say that the places where I was growing up, there wasn't all that much outward tie to Welsh culture. So it wasn't really something that I was even really (laughs) concerned with. To be honest, for most of my teenage years, I couldn't wait to get out of Wales. I really didn't have any particular tie to Wales. I really wanted to go to London and experience the big city, as (laughs) cliche as that is. Um, But Wales is pretty rural. And, you know, the biggest kind of city here is Cardiff, and it isn't really that big. And I was sort of like, oh, you know, I'd gone to London and the bigger cities like Manchester and Birmingham and England a couple of times and was like, whoa, these are absolutely amazing. 
So I really couldn't wait to get out of Wales. And it was only when I left to go to university at 18 and I went to Bournemouth, which is in like the, the south of England. Um, and it's right on the coast, a little bit similar to, to where I was sort of um, born and grew up because I was quite close to the sea, is quite close to the coast. And in the couple of months I was there, I began to miss Wales. Oh, so much. I miss the Welsh people, the Welsh hospitality and the community and the connection. I miss the land. And when I came back, I was like, I am never gonna leave ever again. And that's that's obviously quite a while ago now. I'm 25 at the time of recording. So that was quite a few years ago. And now like my partner, um, who is English, lives here. His family are down here too. So I've kind of kind of drawn other people in to the, to the, to the Welshness. But you know, prior to that, I really had no interest in exploring my culture or ancestry. I had no interest in exploring the Welsh language. I went to private school for basically all of my education up to like 16. And here, private schools can kind of determine their own syllabus. There's there's no kind of guidelines that they have to teach like maths and English and like the sciences. But um, Welsh was really not prioritized in my schools. It was seen as a bit of a, you know, there's not really any point doing it. It's much more, more useful to study Spanish or French or like German or like Latin, which seemed to be like they wanted you to study Latin more than Welsh. And then I actually went to boarding school in England, which obviously didn't teach Welsh either. So I, I kind of felt like I didn't really get a chance to really learn all that much. None of my family speak Welsh. And even though obviously we are in Wales, like everything is in English. There are some laws now, I think, that if there's road signs and stuff, it has to be in Welsh as well as English in a kind of, in an effort to kind of preserve the language. But my kind of interest in Welsh culture and education, I guess, in Welsh history came really from my English partner, who is heavily involved in the Welsh independence movement. He kind of became a little bit more interested in it than me. He's very into history. He kind of did a history degree, was very interested in the Welsh oppression, in Wales's tie to England, because a lot of people don't actually know that Wales is actually a different country than England, um, and has its own culture, has its own history, has its own practices, and obviously it's its own language. But through my partner kind of, I guess discovering his own connection to Wales as someone who had moved here and who had every intention of staying here, you know, for the rest of his life. As he became (laughs) more interested in it, I started, you know, thinking about why I had no interest in Welsh culture or language. I just always felt like it, it wasn't that interesting, but it wasn't really until I began to do some research and understand a little bit more about why I really had no link to it. And it wasn't just a personal thing. This was something that a lot of people were talking about, um, especially a lot of people around my age. They really had no interest in, in Welsh culture. And what's really interesting is when you look at the history, this, I feel, is a massive product of the way that Um, the Welsh people and the Welsh language were kind of oppressed um, in the past. So say for example, I think it was in like the 1800s, I want to say the 1800s, the 1900s, it was like a hundred years. Some schools in Wales, um, because they wanted to discourage pupils from speaking Welsh, because it wasn't considered like a good language. English was considered to be the language that you should speak. Welsh was considered to be like common and 
respectable people didn't speak Welsh, they spoke English. Um, within Welsh schools, they had this thing called the Welsh Knot. And essentially it was like a bit of slate that they would hang around children's necks who were caught speaking Welsh. And if you were caught with the Welsh Knot at the end of the day, you'd be like punished, like caned or beaten or whatever. <laughs> they, they, they did to children then. Um, the only way that you could sort of um, get rid of the knot was to tell on another student who was speaking Welsh. So I think that in and of itself kind of has this insidious, you know, sort of turning people against people kind of attitude. So this was something that I feel was perpetuated within Welsh people, like it was the schools that were doing this within Wales. But even if we go further back in history, like in the 1500s, Henry VIII passed a law saying that it was like illegal <laughs> to speak Welsh. It actually wasn't valid to like speak Welsh in court until like 1942 and during like the 18th century and industrial revolution Welsh miners like were not allowed to to speak Welsh um when they were working if they were caught speaking Welsh they could be fired so all of this stuff then kind of meant that these people were not passing down the language to their children because it's like well they'd be better off speaking English there's more job prospects speaking English and not even just as more job prospects, speaking Welsh was actually seen as like a bad thing. So it could actually mean that you would not get the job, <laughs> even if you could speak English, you know, completely fine. Obviously now there are like laws and stuff in place um, to protect the language, but I do feel like all of this oppression, obviously there's way more. I don't really want to get into like all of the history because I'm not a historian. I would really rather tell the story of my own kind of connection to my practice. But this is just to give a little bit of context of why if you are Welsh or you you have Welsh heritage and you haven't really, haven't really like found any interest or pull or even just finding yourself almost like spiritually disconnected, this is just all to say that like, this is systemic. It is oppressive. This is why there's a big Welsh independence movement. And there is so much, ugh, like if you just Google like Welsh oppression online, you will find so many historical sources. I will put sources in like the description of this um, for the things that I've just briefly spoken about. But this is all to say, if you are feeling that disconnection, like I am, and not even just with Wales, like even if you want to expand this out to other countries and other cultures that have been oppressed, which obviously there is quite a lot, um, and I'm under no kind of illusion that Welsh people are, you know, free of any of the blame. You know, Welsh people did a lot of colonization. Um, they did a lot of oppression alongside the English. So I am under no kind of illusion that, that they are also <laughs> to blame with a lot of other cultures um, that have kind of been decimated. But if you are sort of feeling a disconnection to your ancestral culture or lineage or language, that is usually not a personal thing. There has usually been some historic effort to deny that connection to people. So I hope this encourages you to, to dig into like, okay, why do I feel this disconnection? Could it be that there are um, oppressive systems that are in place now and in history that are actually fueling that disconnection, that have almost made that disconnection? And keeping that in mind gives me a little bit of grace when I'm kind of beating myself up about not feeling um, connected, about feeling disconnected, even though I've been here most of my life. It gives me a little bit of comfort knowing that there are things that have happened in history that have essentially caused a lot of this disconnection, not just for me, but for other people. I frequently beat myself up for not speaking Welsh. And even though like there are plenty of places to speak Welsh, 
I find taking the actual step to start learning it, that's still very difficult for me. Um, and I definitely have the intention of doing it at some point in my life, but it just seems to be such an enormous task that brings up so much grief because I really should have been raised speaking the language of like all my lineage. <laughs> and that's a really fucking sad thing that I can't. And I know a lot of other Welsh people will feel this way. Um, so there's definitely still like a lot of resistance there for me around actually taking the step to to learn Welsh and to start speaking Welsh with people. And I'm always gonna come up with like loads of excuses why, but <laughs> I always felt like my Welsh ancestry wouldn't speak to me because I didn't speak Welsh. Like my grandparents didn't speak Welsh. My parents don't speak Welsh. You know, even people speaking Welsh to me or around me when I was a child was quite uncommon. So for those ancestors that I know, like my grandparents, when I started working with my ancestors, it felt accessible to work with my grandparents because I knew them and they didn't speak Welsh. So I would feel very comfortable leaving offerings for them. But as my ancestral practice, I guess, developed and I really wanted to lean into um, working with my ancestors a little bit deeper, I really didn't know where to go because I was like, <laughs> my ancestors are probably gonna speak Welsh and I cannot speak Welsh. And while I obviously have an awareness of the Welsh language, like I understand the pronunciation, obviously I see like as I go through my day, a lot of pieces of Welsh, I would not be able to hold a conversation in Welsh. And even if people ask me certain questions, I'd still like be like, I have no clue what you're saying. So that felt like a massive barrier to me. And it's really interesting because <laughs> this sort of Welsh language theme and this poll, I know for a fact at one point in my in my magical journey that speaking Welsh will become a big part and probably a big priority. I don't know when that that's gonna be. Um, right now, <laughs> I don't really have the mental capacity to learn another language, but at the same time, I also feel a lot of shame around that. I'm like, should I really be prioritizing this um, rather than other stuff? But this sort of um, push by my ancestors to learn Welsh, was confirmed to me. So because I kind of felt this block with my ancestors kind of beyond my grandparents, I actually bought an ancestral reading with someone, um, Yale of what the water told me. Highly, highly, highly recommend Yale services. Essentially, Yale will journey for you to speak to your ancestors and kind of establish those contacts through their own practice, through their own kind of journeying in your place, essentially. I don't wanna share like all of the, the whole reading. Um, they gave me a fantastic like fully typed document that read beautifully. Um, every time I read it, I cry um, because it was just so validating and so affirming. But the first ancestor that Yale came into contact with, and this is an ancestor that I have now been in contact with, was a old lady who lived in like a cottage. And I remember the description that Yale gave me of this beautiful garden, and I can literally see it in my brain. <laughs> right now and these you know really overgrown colorful teeming with life garden and you know the journey was sort of walking through this garden along with my spirit guide who was like a fat tabby or ginger cat 
which I was like, yes, I love that this is my spirit guide. The ancestor spoke Welsh like the entire time. <laughs> like, and when I have spoken to this ancestor, they have spoken Welsh the entire time. And there was apparently something said to Yale um, from this ancestor about like, you should really be, you need to speak Welsh. And basically after this amazing journey that Yale undertook for me and then kind of brought back all these messages, not just from that ancestor, but from my grandfather and a couple of other ancestors, not even just in Wales, like in other places as well. I then basically did that same journey to that cottage, to that specific ancestor. And yes, I did not really understand much of what was being said because the whole thing was in Welsh. I was kind of <laughs> told off for not speaking Welsh and I was offered a jug of blood. <laughs> and I was like, oh, okay. And for a while, I didn't really know what that meant. When I left the cottage, I remember them giving me a foxglove flower. And I really felt like that was like, take this, work with this flower, work with this plant. Um, it's really interesting because I have very specific memories of my grandfather's garden, which my parents now live in that same house, having these amazing foxglove flowers. And, and either my grandfather or my dad, can't remember who, because I was so young, telling me that they were very poisonous. And this kind of act of seeing this jug of blood that was given to me by this kind of old crone Welsh nana <laughs> ancestor who just spoke to me in Welsh, and kind of gave me tea and a jug of blood <laughs> and then a foxglove flower. For me, it was really um, a push and confirmation to explore more baneful and poison witchcraft. But there is definitely kind of a tie to nature. Similarly, in that journey with Yale, my grandfather took me or Yale or Yale in my place to a lake. My grandfather was a fisherman. My dad's a fisherman. So this makes so much sense. And said, nature is my god. I really felt that. That's something that I've spoken about a couple of times on Instagram because nature really was my my first link with the divine. And if it wasn't for nature, if it wasn't for my father and I guess my grandfather's devotion to nature, to the natural world, I really wouldn't be where I am today. Doing kind of booking in for Yale, booking in for Yale, booking in for the reading with Yale of what the water told me, like another, <laughs> another, like seriously folks, please, please, please book in with Yale because they are absolutely fantastic. Um, very, very, very talented reader, psychic, spiritual guide, they're just wonderful. After this reading, that really kind of propelled me to do my own kind of journey with my ancestors and propelled me to possibly not limit myself with being like, I really don't know much of my ancestry after my grandparents stuff starts to get kind of muddy, you know, and there's really not much of a connection really to any of my family, maternal or paternal. So I kind of have begun to start my own journey with this, my own way of working with the ancestors that I know and that I don't know. And what I found overall is that when I have kind of done this journey with my ancestors, my Welsh ancestry I find is very practical. And the Welsh witchcraft lineage in general, like if you look at historic Welsh witchcraft, it's very practical in nature. There's lots of agricultural charms, like weather magic, witchcraft that kind of affected people's way of life. And what I found as well through my research is that there's so much cursing. So this really made sense why this ancestor had given me this jug of blood 
and this baneful flower, the foxglove, this sort of beautiful but deadly flower, is there is so much cursing in the Welsh historical lineage. And it led me to feel a lot more confident in kind of my own baneful magic. Say for example, like there's something called cursing pots, which are essentially like a big iron pot, which is carved with someone's name and then a piece of like their hair and some baneful ingredients were thrown into the pot and either buried or put under someone's bed. There's also cursing wells are really big in Wales, uh, which is literally, we think they were probably holy wells that then were turned bad for some reason. And essentially um, people would keep these wells, they'd be like the well keeper, if you wanted to curse someone, you would go and speak to these people and they would carve the initials of the person who you wanted to curse on a piece of slate and drop it into the well and that was said to curse this person. And you could also then reverse the curse by going and paying off the person who kept the well and they would go and retrieve your slate. Apparently there was a lot of conning <laughs> that went on with, with the with the cursing wells too. So if people came up and they were like, oh, I'm really worried I've been cursed, even if they hadn't, the well keeper would sometimes just go and carve their initials on a piece of slate so that they could charge that person to take it out of the well. So there is a rich, baneful and cursic magic history with whales. There are so many tales of like witches cursing livestock and humans by freezing them to the spot. Um, this is a feature of a lot of if you look at a lot of like Welsh folklore and Welsh history and kind of these Welsh anecdotes about witches, that is a very common theme about <laughs> freezing livestock to the spot. So then you can't move them, they can't graze, you can't do anything with them. Um, and obviously for <laughs> a very remote Welsh agricultural worker, that would be so um, disruptive <laughs> to not be able to move any of your livestock. And sometimes they would freeze people as well. When you actually look into Welsh witchcraft, there's a lot of Christianity. Like a lot of the the charms and the spells are have like psalms or um, prayers directly to God, or they might be calling on the saints. This isn't a part that I've got into. I wasn't raised Christian. I was kind of raised without any spirituality or religion. So it's something that I have felt not particularly called to. However, when I have done ancestral work, when I've meditated with my ancestors or done journeys with them or just kind of done any communication, um, I have been told off for not <laughs> being Christian, <laughs> um, which is funny. Um, and again, I think it goes to show that our ancestors are all people with their own experiences, their own lives, their own religion. That doesn't just go away when they die. It doesn't just disappear. They don't suddenly become like... <laughs> They understand where you're coming from. There are going to be some of your ancestors, especially if, you know, you're a witch, that might not agree with what you're doing. I have been told off by ancestors for doing witchcraft. I have been told off for not being Christian. I have been told off for working with Aphrodite. However, there are some ancestors that are like, you do what you want to do. This is amazing. Like you're doing so good. So if you are listening to this and you've done some ancestral work, and maybe you haven't felt that connection with your ancestors or you've been kind of told off or admonished by them, know that you're not alone. That's totally fine, <laughs> I think. You know, we have some ancestors that will work really well with us. We have some that really won't. And that's totally okay. And I think it's also important to note here that for 
a lot of Welsh people in the past and for my Welsh ancestors, they probably wouldn't call me a witch um, because to a lot of the ancestors, witches were kind of baneful people. They really distinguished witches from charmers or sunraig. Sunraig were known as kind of the charmers. They helped people. They were the people who did those agricultural charms, helped people, you know, um, with spells for crops or protection or would potentially give out herbal medicine and stuff like that. Welsh people separated witches from charmers which is the people who kind of worked against people. So I think that's an important distinction to make that probably in my ancestors' books, I'm not a witch. I am a sunrise or a charmer because witches are known for something negative. So that's just something to take into account. Does that mean I'm not going to call myself a witch? No, I'm still going to call myself a witch. Um, but you might find if you are interested in looking at Welsh kind of ancestry and Welsh witchcraft that they don't actually call people and healers witches. Um, because that is seen as kind of a negative thing. If you would like to learn more about Welsh witchcraft specifically, I would really recommend um, Mara Starling's book, Welsh Witchcraft. A lot of people have read this book. Even if you're not interested in Welsh witchcraft specifically, I would recommend that you get this book because the way that Mara approaches witchcraft is just really interesting and really fits well with my kind of way of approaching witchcraft from a pleasure-led point of view. Mara goes into like deities, connections to the land, um, connections to the fae, and also I just love their writing style. So even if you're not really interested in, in Welsh witchcraft in particular, or you don't have a connection to Wales, I would still recommend this book because Mara has some amazing kind of techniques and practices that I really feel will benefit anyone's practice and you can obviously adapt them. So if you are someone that's like, I would really like to kind of look into Welsh witchcraft a little bit more, I would really rec recommend um, Mara's book. It covers way more stuff than I can even begin to cover <laughs> in this episode. And like I said, you know, my kind of journey into exploring Welsh ancestry and Welsh witchcraft is relatively new to me because of that disconnection. What's also interesting about when you look at kind of historical Welsh spirituality, is it doesn't really uh, use the Welsh pantheon of gods much. The Welsh gods we mostly get from a collection of tales called the Mabinogion, and these were seen as more folklore. So that's also an interesting distinction to make. You're probably not going to find like any Welsh spells or charms that like invoke Rhiannon or Ariane Rod or, you know, you're probably going to find them that invoke like Jesus <laughs> or God. But I do think this is where we can play around a little bit um, with kind of blending what we consider to be like deity work in and of itself, kind of working with deities potentially across pantheons is, I would argue, a relatively modern witchcraft thing. Obviously, witches have worked with kind of deities and spirits for ages but in the way that we are practicing it in 2022, deity work as it is with altars and potentially looking at deities, not just from one pantheon, but from many, that is, I, I would argue, a relatively modern thing. Obviously, there are certain practices like, you know, um, Hellenistic polytheism that obviously work with many different gods. But in the way that we're doing it now, Welsh ancestors wouldn't have done that. So I do think this is where we can get to play around a little bit. And this is where kind of, 
merging the more historical stuff with my more modern take on witchcraft has been a really joyous kind of avenue for me to take. I also kind of want to <laughs> point out a bit of a pet hate of mine, because I'm going to talk a little bit about the Welsh pantheon. And maybe I'm just bitter because I'm Welsh, but I have such a pet hate of people saying like, oh, I work with like the Celtic deities and then naming the Welsh deities. Because yes, the Welsh pantheon is <laughs> Celtic. However, in the Mabinogion, that is a Welsh collection of tales. For me, those deities are Welsh. They have Welsh names. They reside in Wales. Their kingdoms or realms are in Wales. They are not from any other Celtic place. And I feel like there has been so much oppression of the Welsh culture and the Welsh language that we should allow this pantheon to be Welsh, not Celtic, even though they are Celtic. I feel like we should name those as Welsh deities because they already are not given enough, kind of enough credit, I guess. So that's just a bit of a pet peeve of mine. <laughs> when I see people saying, oh yeah, the Celtic deity uh, Ceredwen or the Celtic deity Arianrod or the Celtic deity Arawn, I'm, I'm sort of like, mm, they're Welsh. <laughs> Maybe that's just me. I'm sure someone's gonna say, mm, they are Celtic. I know they're Celtic. But I feel like Wales and the Welsh pantheon and Welsh witchcraft has already been overshadowed so much by its ties to other parts of the UK. And that's really what I'm all about, kind of differentiating and giving credit to Wales, to Welsh culture, to Welsh people, to the Welsh gods, and really allowing them to speak from a place of Welshness if that makes sense. Um, so yeah, like I said, the Welsh gods are kind of more tied in with folklore than historical practices, at least from what I've seen. The place to look for if you are looking to explore the Welsh gods is the Mabinogion. Um, so this is like a collection of Welsh folk tales and they're kind of filled with like magic and trickery and royalty and fairies and gods and mysticism and all that good shit. I highly recommend reading them. Again, even if you're not interested in the Welsh Pantheon, they are a fantastic group of tales with themes that I really have not seen in a lot of other folklore. If you're looking for a translation, obviously the original Mabinogion are all in Welsh. Um, so if you're like me and you can't read Welsh, I would recommend um, grabbing a copy of the Mabinogion, the copy that I've got and I really enjoy. It's by Seanad Davis. It's very poetic. It has this sort of sing-songy rhythm. Very nice to read it out loud. Because yeah, I have been told that reading the Mabinogion in Welsh is like the most amazing thing. And apparently you will not understand all the magic until you can read it in Welsh. But obviously I can't do that. And I imagine the majority of my listeners can't do that either. If you can read Welsh, and you want to look at the Mabinogion, read it in Welsh, because apparently it is meant to be uh, a whole other level of magic and mysticism and poetry and all that good stuff. And if you're kind of looking for a more abridged version, my first sort of link to the Mabinogion was through a fantastic little book by um, Halo Quinn. Um, it's a pagan portals book and it's called The Gods and Goddesses of Wales. And I got this, I think it was only like three, four quid or something silly like that, um, a digital copy. And it has been a book that I go back to time and time again. Halo gives amazing kind of shortened, um, abridged versions of the myths. 
um, fantastic little like guided meditation and journey through each of the deities, gives correspondences. So if you are looking for more of kind of a, uh, a structured general overview of the Pantheon, that is really the book that I would start with. And I have actually met Halo Quinn and absolutely fantastic person. They were so wonderfully lovely. So I highly recommend that book. What I would also like to say is that my connection to the Welsh Pantheon is very different from my connection to other pantheons. Say for example, my relationship with deities from the Greek pantheon, obviously I am a devotee and priestess of Aphrodite. I would say that the Greek deities, <laughs> at least for me, seem to be a lot higher maintenance and they seem to expect a little bit more. They are a little bit higher maintenance, more involved. Whereas the Welsh pantheon, seem to be a bit more fluid and flexible. Again, they're very practical. That's, that's the word I keep coming back to, whether it's in relation to my connection with my ancestors or my relationship to Welsh witchery or history and Welsh gods, is that it's all so practical. It's all very no frills, um, not particularly ceremonial. And what I found working with the Welsh pantheon is that they are definitely there <laughs> when I need them rather than when I want them to be. And I'll go through phases of being kind of intensely connected to the Pantheon. And then I'll go through months where I kind of just observe them from afar. What's interesting is that whenever I do feel that pull to go back and to, to connect with the Pantheon, I always go back to that mythology, like always, which I don't necessarily get with Greek mythology, even though I grew up with Greek mythology. I find that the stories of the Mabinogion, the stories of the Greek pantheon, the, Greek, the Welsh pantheon, just keep you coming back time and time again. So whereas, say, for example, obviously the mythology, I think, is important with any pantheon of gods, I really feel like it's difficult to, to really get into the energy and the nature of a deity without exploring the mythology and folklore associated with them. I think that's quite a difficult thing to do. But the actual spirit of the stories of the folklore within the Mabinogion and the ones associated with the Welsh Pantheon, they just pull you back in time and time again. And they are just fantastic stories just to tell anyway. I have told many friends renditions of stories from the Mabinogion and it really does give you that feel of being kind of surrounded, <laughs> you know, around a fire with your family and friends and telling these fantastical tales of battles and witches and shapeshifters and sorcerers. There's so much magic in these stories. It's interesting because yes, there's so much magic and there's so much trickery and illusion that goes on in the Mabinogion and goes in goes on in the mythology and the folk tales. But my connection, yes, has been very magical, but it's been magical in a different way. It's been magic purely for practical reasons rather than magic for ceremonial or aesthetic reasons. So I, and this is something that I think a lot of, when I've spoken to other people who've worked with the Welsh deities, they are so, so practical and less focused on what you say and more focused on what you do. So it is a very different vibe compared to my relationship with Aphrodite. However, what's been a really interesting development is that I didn't realize that through exploring my Welsh ancestry and lineage that I would actually understand my connection to Aphrodite on a deeper level. So through kind of exploring my ancestry, I've realized, hmm, maybe that's why I'm pulled to Aphrodite. Where I live in South Wales, like I mentioned earlier, it's very close to the sea. 
very close to the coast. And obviously Aphrodite is an ocean goddess. She rose from the sea, she rose from the sea foam. Um, so I definitely feel like those oceanic ties have definitely been um, set into my foundation through the land's connection to the sea where I'm currently residing and where I was born. My dad's a fisherman, my grandfather was a fisherman. So there's definitely a link to like water and the ocean and fish <laughs> and stuff like that within my lineage. And similarly, you know, um, Swansea, the city where I grew up in, has really prominent connections to copper. Um, and copper is Aphrodite's sacred metal. Um, Wales is also known as the country of bards and kind of poets. And I heavily associate Aphrodite with singing and poetry and expressive literature. You've got stuff like the her ties to Sappho. Obviously, Aphrodite is one of, I think, most depicted goddesses ever. I think she m might be the most depicted goddess. And I really do associate her with that. And singing and expressive writing has been a big part of my connection to Aphrodite. Singing for her is a really common way for me to connect and give offerings to Aphrodite. And at the same time, singing has been such a big tie to my Welsh lineage, to my Welsh ancestry. So I really feel like all of this stuff weaves itself together. And it's funny kind of looking back being like, of course I would be interested in Aphrodite because while obviously Aphrodite is a Cypriot and Greek goddess, when I am around the beaches in Wales, when I am in the valleys of Wales, I feel her. I feel her energy, I feel her love. And I really feel like if she did visit Wales that she would absolutely love it. The most common way for me to be really experiencing the magic of Wales recently has been to get out into the landscape. And even though I spent the majority of my life in Wales, I really haven't explored that much. Um, you know, you can travel from the bottom of Wales to the top in like four and a half hours. Um, like you can travel the whole length of the country in one day. And I know for like a lot of American clients, they're like, that is absolutely wild. Um, and even though I live in a very small country, I really haven't explored that much. And recently that has really been how I've been feeling the energy of Wales, of my ancestors, of the Welsh language. I can really feel the spirit of Wales when I'm in her mountains, when I'm in the valleys and the fields and the forest and I also feel immense grief when I think about the things done to her landscape. The town that was flooded to create a reservoir, you know, the mining, the abuse of this beautiful, magical landscape. But at the same time, Wales is so resilient. I recently went on like a professional mushroom identification course and they took us to a overgrown coal tip. And I don't know, I can't remember how old it was. I think it was only like 30 years old or something. And the person who was teaching this course was speaking about the amazing ecology of coal tips. So for people who don't know, like Wales is like a heavily, especially South Wales, big, big, big mining. Um, and so much mining was done, done around here. And when obviously coal became... <laughs> less popular, um, a lot of South Wales kind of lost the income, it lost its jobs, it lost its economy. So this amazing like coal tip, they said that obviously we were speaking about mushrooms. When we talk about coal tips, it kind of throws a spanner in the works when we think about ecology. Coal tips have, I think they said something like three or four times 
the ecological diversity as the most protected sites in England, which are not coal tips. They don't protect coal tips. I don't really know why. And similarly, they were sort of saying that there are certain mushrooms that can only grow on, on land that's been untouched for over 100 years. Those same mushrooms are growing on coal tips that are only 20 years old. So it seems to be that when we have these, you know, kind of things that would be considered to destroy the landscape that are kind of man-made, Wales does seem to be resistant and resilient to this sort of external hardship, this this abuse, essentially. And I mean, it's it's difficult for me to kind of speak about <laughs> or convey the, the, the magic of this landscape. Um, my friend Toomey, Faith the Witch on Instagram, they used to be um, the Shameless Witch on Instagram, came over from South Africa and visited for my wedding. And they were like, oh, I get it now. <laughs> like, I get the magic because you really don't get it until you've been here. And I shared with Toomey a word that I'd like to share with you all, which is hiraith. Doesn't really have a, a, a specific English translation, but it, it loosely translates to this deep longing for someone's home, specifically relating to Wales and Welsh culture. It's something that a lot of Welsh people say when they are outside of Wales, that they feel this immense hiraith for the valleys, for the mountains. And I feel it. Like when I've gone and spent time in England, I'm like, I cannot wait to get home to Wales, to my valleys, to look at, to look at the, the mountains. And I definitely take it for granted. You know, I, when people come, come down here and they, they see where I live, they're like, holy shit. And I'm like, yeah, it's kind of normal. So I definitely, even, even when I'm in Wales and perhaps not deep in the mountains, I do feel that, that hiraith for Wales, for, for the valleys, for the spirit of the land, for the genius loci. And all kind of mixed up in this is grief. Grief for the culture that has been lost, the history that has been lost, the people that we've forgotten, you know, the abuse that this country has suffered, that the magic has suffered under. But there's also like so much joy and a great well of magic. You know, I know that this is just the very beginning of my journey the very, very, very beginning of my journey. But I hope that through this kind of hour-long-ish episode that I've kind of done it justice and conveyed the complexity of how I feel about this topic. Um, I'll pro I probably will revisit this topic at some point because I'm so early on in my journey. But I feel really thankful for kind of tapping into what feels good for me to explore within my practice because I really feel like pleasure led me here pleasure in understanding my history and understanding the context through which my experience occurred, why I felt that disconnection when I was younger and allowing pleasure to really take the reins on what feels good. You know, currently it's exploring the landscape and the natural surroundings. Maybe in a couple of months, I might feel another pleasurable pull to Welsh cuisine. <laughs> I don't know, Welsh doesn't really have that good cuisine. Uh, I'm sure someone's probably going to shout at me and be like, we have the best cuisine. I don't like cowl, um, which is like the traditional Welsh dish. Uh, I'm also vegan as well. So a lot of the Welsh, a lot of the Welsh kind of traditional stuff is not vegan, unfortunately. But yeah, I, I feel very, very thankful to have the resources to really follow where pleasure is taking me on this ancestral journey. And it just feels really good to kind of let my inner witch take the reins with this one. 
And I feel like almost the lack of connection that I have almost gives me this immense freedom to to play around with this kind of journey. And don't get me wrong, (laughs) you know, uh, learning the skills to trust my inner witch has not come easy. It has been a very long, long, long process. I've made loads of mistakes along the journey, but all of this and all this experience and, you know, all of the time that I spent kind of honing this pleasure-centered witchcraft is what I'm going to be teaching in Rose Witch Coven. My signature four-month pleasure-led program, it comes with a six-month community, 45-minute one-to-ones, like four modules to help you craft a more pleasurable, authentic, creative, juicy, collectively liberated spiritual practice. So if you are interested in that, I'll drop the link in the um, description. Have a look at the page. See if this is something that would feel good for you. If you're craving a bit more intimate support, if you're craving a community of misfit (laughs) weirdo witches, this might be the place for you. So if you're kind of looking for that, you know where I am. Hit me up on Instagram, email me, whatever. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure to give it five stars and share it with friends. This is what I'm told people say on podcasts. Um, This is a new platform for me, so I appreciate all word of mouth and folks sharing the magic with others to discover. Uh, I hope you've enjoyed. I've enjoyed rambling. Um, And yeah, I hope you enjoyed our first episode. I hope it was good. Um, I'll probably spend a while analyzing this and being like, I just spoke a load of shit for nearly an hour. Um, But I hope you've enjoyed it. I will catch you next time on Not Another Witch Podcast. I'm Vicky and I will speak to you soon. Bye.